Bibles, if you would, to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Our, our theme this year is continue. Uh, we're using the life of Daniel to help us understand how we can continue in our walk with him. One of the things that each of us deals with in different ways, but we all deal with it, is periodically we each have to deal with crises in our lives, do we not? Crisis comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. and But one of the things that I have found that uh, is common with most crises that is it is it crises or crises? Crises. Okay, thank you. I, I you know I, English was not my forte. Just saying. Um, uh, but one of the things about a crisis is that <clears throat> they usually come into our lives quickly, and 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 catch us off guard. Do they not? As I was studying for the the message, I came across something I wanted to share with you. Um, it says, um, what really makes people satisfied with their lives amazingly is, is, is <clears throat> the secret may lie in a person's ability to handle life's blows without blame or bitterness. The study reported in the American Journal of Psychology noted that one potential uh, predictor of well-being is the ability to handle emotional crisis maturely. So as I read that, I, th- I immediately I thought of this. In other words, what this what this article is saying is that a crisis can be a good thing. Uh, for lack of better terms, the the thought that popped in my mind was that a crisis will either make us or break us, right? Now I want you to stop and think about two people in your life. One person, uh, a biblical character that you have read in the Bible that you uh, admire or... um, think highly of in the Bible, and then one secular, non-biblical character. Someone in, someone in your life that you think very, very highly of. And, and don't say the names because it's not important, but what I want you to do is I want you to think about these two individuals for just a moment. Obviously, I can't tell you who they are. But I can tell you this, I can, I can almost guarantee both of the people that you are thinking about have gone through very difficult times and handled them very well. Why, why is that? Because those are the kind of people we, we respect, is it not? People that can, can take crises and, and learn to grow through the event and instead of the event controlling them, they control the event. And those are people that we tend to look up to 
respect. From May of <clears throat> from May to September of 1787, the American Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia to develop a system of government from um, for, for the new nation. By June 28th, progress had been so slow that Benjamin Franklin stood and addressed <clears throat> George Washington, president of, of the convention. Among these things, he said, I have lived, sir, a long time. And, and the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He then moved that they invite some local clergy to come to the assembly to lead them in prayer for divine guidance. The motion would have passed except the convention had no budget to pay visiting chaplains. Though not a professing evangelical believer, Benjamin Franklin was a man who believed in a God who is the architect and governor of the universe. A conviction that agrees with the testimony of Scripture. Abraham called God the judge of all the earth in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. King Hezekiah prayed, Thou art the God, even Thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 25. In Daniel's day, King Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way that the Most High God is sovereign over the king, kingdoms of men. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 32. We live in a universe that's are, are in a world today that if you watch the news and you and you talk to people and and it, it seems like every day the world gets just a little crazier every day. But we can never forget that God ultimately is in control. And it's easy, it is easy for us to look at the world today. And, and, and contemplate the truth that God is losing control. But I'm here to tell you, God is in control. Warren Wiersbe wrote this about Daniel chapter 1. He said, the first chapter of Daniel, Daniel's book gives ample evidence of the sovereign hand of God in the affairs of both nations and individuals. As we are studying this, this man, Daniel, and, and, and looking for Daniel uh, to help us understand our need to continue in our faith, we will see over and over and over in this man's life the hand of God over and over and over. And, and, and there's no mistaking that God is in control. Let's read in, in Daniel chapter 1. Start reading in verse 1. And in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto uh, 
<clears throat> excuse me, came uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he had carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of God. And God spake unto Asbanath, the master of the eunuchs, or excuse me, and the king spake unto Asbanath, Asbanath, uh, the master of the king's eunuchs, that he should uh, bring certain of the children of Israel and the king's seed and the princes, children of whom was no blemish, but well favored and skillful in wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science and the such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily portion of the king's meat and of wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuch eunuch gave names he gave unto him uh, unto daniel the name belteshazzar and hananiah shadrach and mishael meshach and unto azariah abednego let's pray dear lord thank you for this day thank you for our time together and uh, i i do ask that you would speak to our hearts that you would encourage us uh, through your word this 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 morning Help us, dear God, to walk with you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, crisis come into our lives two ways. Sometimes they come into our lives what I would call self-inflicted. Right? We, We make a bad choice. Uh, we we do something, we say something, we you know whatever. So so some of the crises that come into our lives are self-inflicted, right? We're and we're all guilty of it, right? Hello, talk to me. Okay, all right. I'm gonna make sure everybody's awake. <clears throat> so you have the self-inflicted crisis, and then you have the crises that come into your life that are out of your control. The event of that we're talking about uh, this morning uh, in the book of Daniel was a crisis that came into Daniel's life that he had nothing to do with. It was not self-inflicted. But the most important thing we can learn this morning is not whether a conflict is self-inflicted or not self-inflicted. It, a crisis, when it comes into your life, is still a crisis. The key isn't where to put the blame. The key to a crisis is how you're going to handle the crisis. 
Because crisis is part of life, is it not? Self-inflicted or not, it doesn't matter. Crisis is part of life. And how, how are you going to handle crisis when it comes into your life? That is the key. And that is the key. And that's what we're going to look at Daniel and see how Daniel handles crisis. The first thing I want to talk about we see in verses 4 and 5 is the captivity. The captivity. There's a list of things here in, in verses 4 and 5 I, that I call the list of requirements of the, of the captives. When, they, when the Nebuchadnezzar goes and takes Judah, he, he goes and he... <clears throat> and he... Uh, <clears throat> he, he, he gives... Uh, Asmanath, the a, a list of requirements, things that he is supposed to look for. The first requirement that we see here is that they need to be of the things the, the king's seed or princes, so the extended family of the king. And this is very very important um, for the future sake in the in the lives of these young men because they had to be young men of of stature they had to know how to handle themselves in the in the presence of the king and if they were the extended family of the king then they would have known how to act appropriately in in certain situations so they were not looking for just smart kids they were looking for royalty of sorts and back then these families were huge, so so the number of princes and and <coughs> excuse me, young men that met these requirements was in the hundreds. The second requirement was personal appearance; they were to be uh, uh, without blemish, or in other words, we would say good looking. And and that you know you know in our society today we we think that's that's just kind of wrong, but you know the, the the reality is this: the king didn't want to look at ugly people. I'm just telling you that's that's just that's just the way it was. You know he didn't want the king. You you have to understand the culture of the day. The king didn't want to look at uh, uh, unattractive people or or sickly people. He only wanted to be surrounded with people that were pleasant to look at. And as, as, as crude and rude as that sounds, it just that's the way it was. The third requirement was the uh, <clears throat> personal abilities. These, these young men who stood in, uh, the, 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 who, who completed the course, I guess you would say. This three-year intensive learning curve. Okay, let, let's stop and talk about this for a minute. Okay, most of the young men that were taken from Babylon or from Judah into Babylon were young teenagers. In three years, they had to unlearn everything that they had learned and learn a completely new culture. Language, culture, everything. Religion, everything. They had to learn it all in three years. And the ones who 
made it through the course in a sense would be counselors and advisors to the king. So do you think that the hundreds that started this journey, if you would, do you think all of them finished? No, absolutely not. In fact, a very, very small percentage of them probably finished this intensive training course. But they would be the high officials. They would be the ones who would stand in the king's court when the king needed to make um, decisions. They would be the ones who would advise the king. The fourth requirement was that they were they needed to be skillful in wisdom. Now, <clears throat> as in that day, it is the same today. This is a rare commodity, is it not? The king was prepared to pay a premium for wisdom amongst his counselors. And it was Asmanaz's responsibility to track, I guess you'd say, or train all of these young men. Men who would speak not only truth, but wise, wisely to the king. The fifth requirement was men that were informed, men that, that uh, could supply the king with an endless stream of facts, figures, and um, vast knowledge of current events. Well-educated men that were up to date with things going on in the world to the best of their knowledge. The sixth requirement was men who <clears throat> were inquisitive. Men who understood uh, the world around them in the realm of science and, and astrology because the, the um, uh, Babylonians were, were big into astrology. So they would, they would have had to understood all of that. And a, a little side note here, uh, just... I mean, we're just on the heels of the Christmas season, okay? <clears throat> Where do you think the wise men came from? Babylon. They, they were actually wise men or magi that followed in Daniel's footsteps and understood Daniel's teachings in the book of Daniel. And that's why Daniel... <clears throat> gave them clues to look for a star. Because as soon as the star appeared, they would know it because why? Because they were fascinated with, the, with astrology. Anyway, that was, that was free. <clears throat> but Asmanaz had to pay attention through all of this stuff. And he, had, he was the one who who would determine who would continue on through the course and who would not. 
very important man in the in the in the government in the in the life of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Azariah. Let's see, I I just forgot the real names. Um, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. <clears throat> important man in their lives, and and then finally, there was a dietary requirement, and I had somebody. Last week, come up to me and says, Pastor, don't preach about the diet. I ain't changing my diet. <laughs> but I, I want to say this about the diet, and we're, we're going to talk more about it later. <clears throat> it, the, the, the diet was not so much about what they were eating. The thing that, that upset Daniel was the fact of where the food came from and how how it was processed because the meat that they were requiring these these young men to eat was being they it was meat that had been offered as sacrifice to their gods and for Daniel this was something that was well Daniel and his three friends it was something that was very um offensive and they did not want to eat meat that was offered to idols. So that is, it wasn't, again, it wasn't so much what they were eating, it was, it was what they were eating, if that makes sense. Where it came from and the process that it was, it was, it came to them. So we have the, the, the uh, captivity. Let's talk about the identities. The identity. And this is, this is, kind of really important actually verses 6 and 7 tells us that uh, uh, we have four named individuals out of the hundred that were taken hundreds uh, that were taken captivity into captivity uh, you have four that were that we know the names of Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah. Four young men that had their lives turned upside down. Four young men that were living in the midst of crises. That was not their fault. These four men did nothing, did nothing to cause this situation but yet they were stuck in the middle. Each of these men's names had, were, had some reference to God. The first one is Daniel. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. Mishael means the high place. And Azariah, Jehovah, is strong. All four of these men were named after some characteristic of God. But the king of Babylon would not want a Hebrew name used in his palace. So he gave them all Babylonian names. Well, actually, Asmanaz is the one who gave them new names, but he, give, he gave them names 
the new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These new new names were uh, all related to heathen idols, just as their original names related to Jehovah God. I found that to be interesting. But by changing their names, the the, the hope was or is that you change their name, you change their identity. So the king brings them in and tells Azunel to, to do all this and he gives them all new names. But as we study the life of Daniel, one of the things that we're going to see over and over and over play out in Daniel's life is the meaning of his name. God is my judge. Think think about this for a second. God is my judge. Daniel was a man who stood for right. And we'll, we'll see that here in a minute. But Daniel stood. But as we, as we study his life over the next several weeks and probably into the next couple of months, we're going to see over and over and over this play out in Daniel's life. Where Daniel understood that his peers were not his judge. The king was not his judge. The public opinion was not his judge. But God was his judge. And as I sat and meditated on that principle, I asked myself the question, is God my judge? Do I let my peers, my public opinion affect who I am and what I am? I think that's a question we should all ask ourselves. Who is your judge? What causes you to make the decisions that you make? Daniel was a man who was very singular in that thought. As I thought about it, I thought, who is my judge? Is God my singular judge? Is he the one that I'm trying to please? Because as we, as we look at the life of Daniel, and we understand this principle about Daniel's life, the decisions that Daniel makes over and over and over and over in his life all go back to that single purpose of pleasing God ultimately. Why could how could Daniel stand at the, the 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 opening of the den of lions and and not be fearful? Because he had a single focus in life, and that was to please God. So we talked about the captivity. We talked about their identities. Let's talk about conviction conviction. 
Look at verse 8. But Daniel, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Oftentimes, when crisis comes into our lives, it will cause conviction in our lives. It will cause us to draw a line in the sand, so to speak. Verse 8 is one of the most impactful verses, I believe, in the book of Daniel, possibly one of the most impactful verses in the Bible. Say just one verse. Yes, just one verse. And we're going to look at some things in this verse that hopefully can change your life. First, Daniel was determined. Even though he was in the midst of a a major crisis in his life, one that he had nothing to do with, he was determined. But Daniel purposed in his heart. The word purpose here means to, to, to set or to fix with conviction, with, with authority. He purposed. He, 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 he made up his mind. I am not going to do this. Period. He was determined. Another word in this statement that helps us understand who Daniel was is that the the conviction was not something that he made in his head. Where did it come from? His heart. The heart is always in the Bible, almost always refers to that inner being, the the thing that defines who you and I are. It is, the, it is the thing that makes us who we are. And it is there that we make these choices. Convictions. And Daniel, Daniel made the conviction from his heart, not his head. If he had made it from his head, he would have, he would have quit on it. But he made, the, he, he made the choice because it was a conviction from the heart. And it is the same for you and I. When crises come into our lives and, 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 and we use these conviction or these crises to, to grow us and to make us stronger, when it comes time for conviction in our lives, it has to come from the heart. The second lesson that we can learn is that Daniel was very concerned about purity. He says, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. 
Daniel wanted to stay pure in his love and practice of worship with God. And he did not want to eat meat that had been offered to idols. This was an important thing for him. He wanted to stay pure in his relationship with God. And that should be a desire of each of our hearts this morning. To have a pure, clean relationship with God. James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world, or pure, undefiled from the world. Purity is and it should be an important part of our lives. What we see, what we hear, what we watch. The third lesson that we can see is that he was passionate about his conviction. He said, with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. It would have been easy for Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for them to just say, hey, you know what? What's the, what's the point? We're captives in a strange land, in a heathen land, in a horrible, wicked land. God has forgotten us. What's the point? Who who cares? And out of all the hundreds that were taken captive, four decided to stand. Four. Again, I believe it goes back to Daniel's name. Because Daniel was not concerned about peer pressure. And let, let, let me say this, okay? We, we assign the, the, this, this title, peer pressure, to teenagers today and say that teenagers are under immense amount of peer pressure. And that is true. Teenagers are under incredible amounts of peer pressure. But peer pressure goes way beyond high school and college We all deal with peer pressure. Every single one of us. So don't think that you're immune from it. And Daniel most certainly was not immune from it. Daniel was not concerned about peer pressure, public opinion, or what the king thought. Daniel's only concern was what God thought. We need to be passionate. And remember that God is our judge. The fourth thing that we can learn from this is that he was courageous. Courageous. Look at what he says. He says, therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs. This is an incredibly important man. 
a high-level government official who could at any time have looked at one of the guards and said, kill him. He was courageous to buck the system, so to speak. Daniel walked the walk. He didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk. James chapter 1 and verse 22 to 24, it says, But be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. He was a man that was courageous, but also, number five, he was courteous. He was courteous. He didn't point his finger in asthma and asthma and say, I ain't doing it. No, what does he say? He says, therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. What did he do? He requested. He was courteous. He wasn't rude. We can stand for truth and be loving about it. He was a man of conviction, but he did it in such a way that he was polite about it. But the most important lesson that we can learn from this one passage, this one verse, is the first two words. But Daniel. What, what does the Bible not say? It does not say, but Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Azariah, or did I say, anyway, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It doesn't say that. It says, but Daniel. And the greatest lesson I think we can learn from this, this one verse is the fact that Daniel was willing to stand alone. Daniel was willing to stand and say, I don't care what other people think, I am going to do right now. Now, I personally believe that <clears throat> the, other, the other three stood with him. But Daniel was the leader. Daniel was the one who went to, the, to Asmanaz and said, hey, look, I don't want to do this. It was, it was Daniel who led the way. And I believe that the other three followed. But he was willing to stand alone. And there are times in our life when crisis come into our lives where we just have to learn sometimes we are just going to stand alone. And we're going to face it and we're going to have that conviction and we're going to do right. We're not going to let the world dictate what we think or how we act. But we're going to do it in conviction and love in such a way that we give honor and praise to God. But Daniel, 
Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. There are just some times we need to stand. As I thought about this, I also thought of Psalm chapter 23 and verse 4. The 23rd Psalm is an incredibly familiar passage to many of us. But as I thought of Daniel and, and standing in this situation, I, I couldn't help but think of Psalm chapter 23 and verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Daniel knew that ultimately God was in control. Daniel's world was spinning out of control. He had no control over it. The world was going crazy at the time. If you know world history, when this was taking place, the Babylonians, who were a ruthless, ruthless people, were literally conquering the world. Nation after nation after nation, and thousands upon hundreds of thousands of people were being murdered, tortured. And all of this is going on, and Daniel, in his little world, was able to stand and say, you know what, I don't care what's going on in the world today. I'm going to stand and I'm going to do right right now, because ultimately, I know that God is in control. I want to close with this. <clears throat> I read it earlier. I want to read it again. The quote from Warren Wiersbe. The first chapter of, of, of Daniel's book gives ample evidence of the sovereign hand of God in the affairs of both nations and individuals. God is in control today. Just as he was in Daniel's day, he is in control today. And he is concerned about your life just as he is concerned about every life on, this, on the face of this earth. He is not only in control, but he wants to be in control of your life. How are you going to react? As our theme is, continue. My God is in control. My job is to continue. One brick at a time. One row at a time. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your love and for the work You do in our lives. And Lord, we are so thankful and grateful for all that You do. For all that You do. We are so grateful. Help us, dear God, never to lose focus on You, on the fact that You are in control. What an incredible blessing. We ask, dear God, as we close our service, that You would speak to our hearts, that You would encourage us, that You would help us to be more like You. For it's in Christ's name we pray. With every